Hey everyone, welcome back to The Green Room. I'm your host, Swarnov. Today I'm joined by John and Amber of ExaQuest Carbon, and we're going to be diving into one of the most interesting and hot topics in the climate space in today's day and age, and that is carbon sequestration and carbon capture as a broad market. Now, many of you may have heard of things like biochar, as that's been a very popular method of potentially sequestering carbon, and even companies that are on rocket ships like Opus 12, or formerly known as Opus 12 and now known as 12, that are literally sucking carbon out of the air. Today, John and Amber are here to help educate us all a little bit more on what potential other alternatives there might be and what the positive and negative benefits of each method is so that we can better evaluate different options as we dig into carbon capture and carbon sequestration technologies. Amber, John, it's a pleasure. I'd love to get a little bit of an intro from you guys and uh, also share a bit more about uh, what ExaQuest is all about. Well, thanks for having us, Swarnav. We're happy to be here. I guess I'll go first with the introductions. Um, so I'm John Lin. I'm the uh, president and a co-founder with uh, Dr. Amber Yanda of ExaQuest Carbon. Um, ExaQuest Carbon is a 501c3 research nonprofit, and we're working to develop technologies that will enable long-term biomass storage for CO2 removal, which is something we're going to talk about quite a bit today. Um, a little bit about myself. Um, I originally trained as a lawyer. So science is my second career. About the age of 30, I said, what am I doing as a lawyer? The world doesn't need another lawyer. So I went back to school, uh, retrained in chemical engineering, got myself into the PhD program at Stanford in uh, chemical engineering. I was working on CO2 electrolysis for my PhD research. So exactly what a company like 12 is doing. Um, and I'd say about four years in, I said, you know what? Uh, I think maybe we need to revisit how we're going to tackle this CO2 problem at a gigaton scale. And we can talk a little more about that later, but I sort of had this realization that perhaps there was a different way to approach this. And that's where ExaQuest comes from. I think ExaQuest is a, uh, an approach that has a better chance of working now as opposed to 50 years from now. So with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to my co-founder, Amber, for her sure. intro. Hi, I'm Amber Yanda. Um, I uh, came from a chemical industries uh, background, actually, right after I graduated uh, from college in 2006. I went to work for Dow, and I was working on uh, R&D on um, building insulation, so to increase the efficiency that buildings have of preventing temperature fluctuations. And... Um, I became very inspired by that work just because um, it was, I saw an opportunity to make um, a dent in the carbon emissions that are associated with um, heating and cooling buildings. And uh, the more I thought about that, the more I also wanted to um, actually work on chemical processes themselves and making them more efficient. And uh, one of the things that can do that is a catalyst, which um, reduces the energy and makes the reaction run better and more efficiently. And so, um, to do that kind of work, really, you needed a PhD, and uh, I ended up. Yeah, I could imagine. <laughs> I ended up uh, going back to get my PhD in chemical engineering at uh, Berkeley, and I um, spent my time working on zeolite catalysis there. And um, okay, I always imagined that I would go back to Dow or an Exxon Mobil or something like that, and um, uh, work on making those processes efficient. If we're going to have to use hydrocarbons uh, and 
take oil from the ground, we should use that resource as, as carefully as possible. And, um, but the longer I was out in the Bay Area, the more I started to, to realize that the, there was a bigger problem going on that really needed to be solved, I think, faster than, than, than that. And that was uh, removing carbon from the atmosphere. And so I ended up in a postdoc at uh, Stanford, which is where I met John, and I was working on uh, converting carbon dioxide and, and carbon monoxide um, into um, useful fuels and chemicals, only I was looking at not electrochemistry, but uh, the more traditional type of catalysis that you would see in like an oil company's um, plant or something like that. So I was, I was looking at thermal catalysis, and, and so I was able to kind of use my skill set to, to look at this issue. Um, but I came to really kind of the similar you know, conclusion that John did, uh, that it, it wasn't really going to um, move the needle that much. Um, I'll skip some of the, the, the story, but I ended up going back to industry for a, a little while as a product developer um, at, at Clorox. And uh, I found it as a board member with John Hexaquest, so I was on the board for, for a while. And um, Late earlier this year in 2021, I actually uh, came on full time with Exoquest as as the CTO in July. Okay, so 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 first off, two extremely fascinating histories. It it seems like you guys have both come from technical backgrounds. Even being a lawyer, while it's not a science <laughs> related field. It requires significant intellectual thought to be able to do it effectively and to be able to apply that skill set, Amber, in your case, coming from a chemicals background to initially help in a way also help with the climate by making sure oil mining is done productively if we're going to go down that route. Um, it's, it's amazing to see how you both have come together and started something to actually introduce, I guess, a more scalable solution to the market, or at least educate people on potential alternative options there are to just using big fans to pull carbon out of the air or using biochar. And I think you guys called it woody biomass as a option that a lot of people yeah, I think, are um, overlooking. Woody biomass is part of it. And um, since you're asking the broad question about carbon sequestration in general, we, we can step back for a second and, and just think for a second about how do you remove CO2 from the atmosphere? Um, and really, there are only three ways to do it. Uh, there is the direct air capture technology that you mentioned. So the, the mm -hmm. fans, uh, you're, you're picking up 400 ppm CO2, you know, and you're going to separate it and then store it as CO2. There's another technology that Amber and I, you know, admittedly are not big experts in. It's called rock weathering. So okay. certain rocks, um, think of like volcanic lava comes out of the earth and it's, its chemical composition is uh, dominated by silicon. So you have these rocks that are magnesium and calcium with silicon. And over time, the silicon is replaced by carbon in a weathering reaction. So you get silicon, I'm sorry, calcium or magnesium carbonate. So calcium carbonates limestone. Um, and, you know, there are people who want to take that natural process and speed it up. So, you know, okay. that's not necessarily a bad idea, um, but it has plenty of adherence and plenty of people who are trying to do that right now at scale. Now, what we think is being overlooked is focusing on the third mechanism for CO2 capture, which is photosynthesis. Um, hmm. And you would say, well, no, photosynthesis isn't being overlooked. People are obviously aware of it. Um, they know that plants and trees capture CO2 and they store it in the biomass. 
But what we think was being overlooked was the potential to intervene in the carbon cycle. Um, so every year, the carbon cycle is going to draw in about 200 gigatons of CO2 and turn it into biomass. Some of it's woody mm. biomass. Some of it is like, I don't know, grass or, you know, stems or bushes, anything you can imagine that, that grows. Um, and then that 200 gigatons of CO2 is offset every year by decomposition. So we don't notice it. It's, it's a huge flux of CO2 that's in the background. And the idea that Amber and I came up with, with with ExaQuest Carbon is how can we intervene in biomass decomposition? How could we slow that down? And, and woody biomass is a natural first thought because look around your house, look at these you know door panels behind me, they're made of wood. If they're kept dry and, and otherwise protected from decomposition, they should last for 200 years. There's no reason right. to expect them to decompose. Um, so that's the genesis of the idea, right? Think of all the ways you could possibly slow down biomass decomposition. And because there's so much biomass involved, you don't have to slow it down by very much. Imagine hmm. just a 5% change in biomass decomposition. You're already at 10 gigatons of CO2 per year. Um, so and anyway. how much do we need to be drawing down for it to be significant enough to solve the problem at the pace that we need to solve it at? Well, uh, Amber and I are not like climate scientists in the sense that we're modeling the climate system at a very high level. Um, but from the literature that we're aware of, it's on the order of at least five gigatons of CO2 per year um, okay. coming up very soon. And I think by the end of the century, people are talking more in the range of 10 to 20 gigatons of CO2 per year being needed. Now, now compare that to current human emissions of about 40 gigatons of CO2 per year. So okay. we're looking at having to remove a significant fraction of what we currently emit every single year. Um, yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> there, there's also been discussions that uh, electrification or decarbonizing all of the human race's emissions is a near impossible goal to truly achieve in the time frame that we need, which is what makes carbon sequestration such a hot area because... If at least we can delay the inevitable, then at least it gives us time to actually reach that fully decarbonized state in whatever timeline it requires. But you bring up a really interesting stat. You said on the magnitude of about five gigatons a year, and if you make a slight improvement, a 5% improvement to the decomposition rate of woody biomass in this case or biomass then we're getting close to 10 gigatons a year so why is this being overlooked are there technical challenges in slowing the rate of decomposition that leads scientists innovators and businesses from saying hey this is really not the way we should be thinking about uh, solving this i guess global problem yes yeah, so um, yes, yeah, certainly, like uh, with, with any way of sequestering carbon, you're going to have some technical challenges. Um, and there, there are some with, with storing biomass and preventing its decomposition. Um, and I'll, I'll give a couple examples of that. Um, one would be uh, microbial decomposition that's going to happen, uh, fungal decomposition. Um, so you're going to want to decrease the rates of those. You can do that uh, a number of ways. One, one way that we found in the literature is to just keep it sufficiently dry, the, the biomass. The microbes need sufficient water. And, and this is like, yeah. so is this, is this like, 
you know, moss growing on it or it just becoming really soft and mushy, kind of like how uh, those wood chips in a playground might become after a really rainy day. Is that what like fungal or microbial decomposition might be? That's part of to? it. I mean, when you see like a log on the forest floor that's gotten soft, it has started to rot because these these microorganisms are are eating it away essentially. And um, so you you're okay. going to want to basically create an environment where it's not favorable for those organisms to function. And the way that we're proposing to do that right now is above ground dry storage. There. There are some other ideas popping up around the world that John and I have come across uh, from some scientists and small business people who are interested in preserving it in other ways. Um, but just suffice it to say, yes, there are there are some challenges, but they're definitely not insurmountable. And um, the reason to answer your other question uh, about you know why why aren't people looking at this? Um, it took us a while to really, I think, figure uh, figure that out ourselves, and um, it 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 really uh, goes back to I think the fact that um, in this area of coming up with NETs, um, a lot of the people who are recommending the NETs are are kind of married to a type of solution already. So um, so what ends up happening then is it, when, when that's the case is you don't have um, people interested in working on it unless there's like already someone who knows how to do it. So um, I don't hmm. think that the problem space was sufficiently mapped out like you would do in say, I don't know, like a management consulting, you're going to definitely do that before you jump into a solution space or, or I, I came from industry and I, I have a, a Six Sigma certificate and you're always gonna wanna model, understand the problem before you jump into solutions. And so I think a, a, an issue that people may not be seeing is, uh, is that uh, a lot of the people that are interested in doing certain things have a, an emotional or financial tie uh, in looking at those solutions and no one was really trying to do what we were trying to do before. And so that's, hmm. yeah, that's, that's I think um, a big, part of uh, the problem. Um, expertise, expertise, yeah. So right? backing up a little bit further, though, I, I can say that uh, the National Academy of Sciences in 2018 actually did um, suggest preventing wood from decomposing uh, to sequester carbon. They briefly hmm. sequest that they briefly mentioned this uh, topic in 2018 in a very long report. Um, because it was noted by the EPA decades ago that lignocellulose didn't actually decompose quickly in landfills. And I think that someone, someone took notice of that and it made it into that report. Um, but it just never made it to uh, the, the final list of recommendations. And, and John and I want to, we're trying to understand why that happened because there was essentially no scientific debate. Like it's, you know, yeah, as, as to, to why. why. So and, until, you know, we, we understand that why, uh, we're going to keep pursuing this idea. So. So you guys at ExaQuest are, I guess, building that expertise in woody biomass as a potential carbon sequestration tool. And you guys are exploring one such method, which is keeping it dry above ground, because I imagine when it rains, it and just drains down naturally. 
um, because when wood gets waterlogged, it, it, it also can be unwaterlogged, I suppose, with gravity and heat. Right. Um, is that is that the general premise of what you guys are going for? Yeah, um, it, it is well, uh, the general premise. And uh, we're, we are, yes, we do want to build expertise, you know, as for ExaQuest as an organization. But the, the more that we've been doing what we're doing, the more that we're figuring out part of our role is also to unite these other people that we've encountered who are kind of smaller players that are kind of scattered around that aren't really part of the networks that John and I are coming from, from, you know, Stanford University. And, and so we are kind of uniting them together uh, and um, letting them know that, hey, you guys are out there. And it's going to, we think this technology is going to come uh, into existence and get adopted at a large scale differently than the than NETs that are spinned out of, say, a university lab. And so ExaQuest's other thing besides building expertise and doing its own experiments is going to be finding all these other people, um, which are kind of just popping up and um, uniting them and getting them to talk to these, these other networks that were cross-pollination, we like to call it. So. <laughs> That's actually that's a that's a that's a very simple way to communicate it is where we're right. cross pollinating the carbon sequestration sure. community, uh, which is which is which is a fascinating way to present it, because the the thing that I I see really, or at least the way I'm understanding it from here, is the thing a lot of people like to cover are the transformational breakthrough technologies, and we need them. You know, we'll probably need, and you know, I'd love to hear your guys' opinion. I'd, I'd imagine we still need direct air capture, big fans sucking carbon out of the air. We're probably still gonna need biochar and a ton of different solutions to actually, like I've even heard algae as a potential option for carbon sequestration at scale by surfacing phytoplankton and it went well over my head, but it seems like there's so many different options that it's not one holy grail solution that is one silver bullet and solves everything, as they'd say. But what it sounds like is this woody biomass approach may be a simple near-term bridge solution. It might be a silver bullet, but at least from the broad sense of how things seem to get adopted, is is it too far to say that it's a great bridge technology or bridge solution while these other technologies continue to be invested in to see what might be a more efficient carbon sequestration approach? Is that where you guys see it? Or do you see woody biomass as like, hey, if funded properly, this could be a true silver bullet-like solution to meet our minimum drawdown requirements every single year. Well, it's it's funny that you mentioned the word transformational technologies. Um, so, so to answer your direct question, yes, sure, biomass storage can be a bridge. Um, we would certainly ask that people start paying attention to it now. But but think about what the technology is behind um, this this biomass based approach. It's photosynthesis. And you know, Amber and I, as we described in our, in our backgrounds, are coming from laboratory research where I was taking raw CO2 out of the tank and attempting to use electrochemistry to convert it into alcohols or anything longer chained um, that would be useful. Um, if I could have made wood in the lab, I would have been delighted, but we can't do it. Um, Amber was attempting to use you know, heat and pressure-driven catalysis to do the same thing, make alcohols useful chemicals. 
Now think about what a plant does. A plant is a living organism that reproduces itself. And with sunlight, water, CO2, and a few nutrients, it makes wood, it makes plant material, just sort of magically. If a scientist went into the lab and invented photosynthesis, you would win every Nobel Prize there is to win. It's a shockingly amazing technology, and it's so underappreciated. And <laughs> when, when I look at what, you know, no, no offense to my former colleagues who work at 12 or founded 12, but like, look at what they're doing versus what a plant does. There's no competition. The plant, the plant is, you know, winning that, that race every single day in terms of amount of carbon converted into useful products, you know, per unit energy. So, okay. If, if, if you just accept for a second that photosynthesis is a superior technology, we should try to squeeze as much as we can out of it in terms of CO2 drawdown. That's what ExaQuest is about. You know, it's bringing more appreciation to this technology that nature has figured out, right? Uh, instead, of and, insisting and, and, that, instead of insisting that we as humans must invent our own replacement for photosynthesis, <laughs> because I, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, it's not going to work. <laughs> you can try to redo photosynthesis in the lab. You're not going to do it as well as a plant does. Um, I mean, I mean a, lo a lot of great technologies are inspired by nature from, I mean, I, I imagine even like you could, uh, you could probably point back solar uh, as as something that's been inspired by nature. I mean, I'm sure planes were too. You can probably point to a lot of things in nature that that probably have have resulted in technological revolutions in, in society. But that's actually, I mean, when when you mention scale photosynthesis, the first thing that pops into my head is not biomass. Like, hey, how do we slow the rate of biomass degrading because Supposedly, that fallen tree is still actually pulling carbon out of the air, which was a new fast. That was new information to me as well. But as as I've come to learn more about it, the first idea that pops into my head is, well, I guess we just need to learn how to scale and plant more trees because there's plenty of deforestation and there is enough land, globally speaking, that we could probably go into and start planting. Is it a slower option? Um, are we thinking more long-term at that point? Probably. Um, but it seems like the most scalable approach towards achieving this overall objective of scale photosynthesis. What led you guys to take that even further? What's that turning point that can go on in my head and in the audience's head that could help me understand that well, it's not just planting trees. If we want to leverage nature's technology, then we have to do blah because of blah. I, I haven't made that connection yet. Sure, sure. Um, so think of a forest, a nice, healthy, fully grown forest, no deforestation happening. It's, it's at steady state, okay? You have trees that are growing and some trees are dying. And you know the, the fully grown mature forest represents the carbon cycle. Some CO2 okay. is brought in every year, it makes biomass, and some plants and trees are dying every year and they emit CO2 as they decompose. What you want to do, obviously growing trees is a good thing. So take areas that used to have forests, now you wanna regrow the forest, that's excellent. You wanna turbocharge that. You wanna say, once we grow the trees, let's now think of creative ways so that even when the trees die, they don't decompose. That's a way of taking that 
what, what people would call with reforestation, they would say that's a sort of a temporary or like a, a type of carbon sink that could become saturated. Well, now you can add to that and you can say, well, no, it actually doesn't become as saturated as you think, because now when trees die, like a storm comes through, knocks over a bunch of trees, a drought or a disease comes through, kills a bunch of trees. Those trees aren't going to decompose. You can now harvest them and then put the wood into storage. And so it becomes a longer term solution. Meanwhile, nature will continue drawing down CO2 through photosynthesis every year. So here's an analogy that might help is um, think of a bathtub, right? And uh, the photosynthesis that's making biomass is water pouring into the bathtub. And the decomposition back to CO2 is the, you know, the water draining out of the bathtub. You don't need to plug the bathtub entirely. You don't need to stop decomposition. You just need to kind of slow down the rate at which the water drains out. And guess what happens? More water in the tub. That's what we're doing is we're sort of increasing the, the store of biomass that we're keeping track of, basically. And, um, and that, that could be done through some, like, I mean, do we have to go as far as genetically modifying tree seedlings? Or is it as simple as just saying, hey, tree is dead or it's fallen. Now let's take it, chop it up into mulch and throw it in a tub and lift it in the air. Is it is that like the oversimplification of what's going on? I would say no genetic modifications needed, and you don't even okay. have to chop the tree up. You know, actually, whole trees oh. without when you grind up a tree, it's going to decompose faster. So keep it whole, huh. and find ways to put those logs into storage. Um, and uh, we we claim that you are going to be able to do that with very little energy input, and you're going to get a huge CO two drawdown benefit from that. So, but, but what's, what's curious to us, and I think this brings us back to the, the motivation for this entire episode, is that there's no scientific attention on this right now. It, it's, it, it struck me, you know, me as a PhD student, chemical engineer, I was like, somebody should be working on this, right? It, it's been suggested. We're not the first people to come up with this idea of burying logs or storing them above ground. You could even sink them to the bottom of the ocean. There are many ways to try to remove them from an environment where they would decompose, but nobody's trying to do it. Yeah, it, it, it just, it seems to me like something that we, that's a gap that we should fill. And, and we could not persuade anyone at Stanford, anyone connected to Stanford to take this seriously. So we said, well, you know, you go out and start a 501c3, you can do research as a nonprofit. That's exactly what we're doing. And, and is there, I, I know you mentioned there's no reason. And when I understand the the approach and the methods and the technology that you guys are going after, not really even technology, it's its really just how do we scale what nature's already doing is, is the proper way to communicate this. It makes sense, albeit I'm not a PhD in this. I, I'm just a guy on the internet that people are listening to that, that understands climate. I come from the energy space. So what do I know? But at the same time, it passes like a first principles check, which I imagine other people also can see. The The thing I'm unable to comprehend is there's no research on it. There's no efforts that have been done globally on this at all, but it still has that large of potential impact. Is Is there any reason at all as to why? Or have you guys been able to hypothesize even far-fetched reasons as to why they're not paying attention um, to this? Yeah, I can, I can take a stab at that. So like, going back to what I was saying about the uh, National Academy's report, um, 
where it was pointed out that there was potential to, to sequester carbon in, in wood that was not allowed to decompose. Um, we did uh, follow up with the, the National Academies, uh, one of the co-directors of the study, and um, he told us that the main reason that they didn't go dive deeper on the idea was just constraints, like time constraints, resource constraints. You know, there's only so many committee members and scientists, and, but there were a lot of NETs on the table. And so I guess we're going to be talking to, to somebody else who was on that committee soon uh, to learn more. But um, I think just to hypothesize uh, about what might have happened is it, it could be that um, the, they didn't have the right expertise for somebody to really dig in. And or, or there wasn't interest in and that could have been it. Like I was pointing out earlier, um, we're not aware of any pre-existing academics or scientists who were who were looking at trying to keep wood from decomposing. And so it, it, perhaps that was the issue. Uh, that's again, speculation until we actually can, can verify it. Um, but I mean, is it, is it really that? Because like, because like when I think about it, I, I had a stint doing research. I don't have a PhD, but I've done research. I've done lab-based research. I've done, I've conducted mm -hmm. all that. You want to throw far-fetched ideas out. That's true. I mean, mm -hmm. is it? Is it ridiculous to assume that this is just not interesting enough? If like if I came to you and I presented this to defend my thesis or I did this as my PhD, would any anybody even accept? Well, that? I can <laughs> I can you know. take a stab at that too. Um, one professor at um, one of the top universities, top is in one of the better known R ones in the U.S. Uh, did actually tell John and I that the this subject of you know, biomass uh, preservation was too applied for a university professor. And that was his, that was the reason uh, that he wasn't interested in looking at it. And so it could be that, you know, the specific professors and universities that it, people are going to, or I don't know where you were planning to take your thesis idea, but if you're planning to take it to some of the places that John and I um, have a lot of connections with, they may not be interested in it because because of that applied aspect. It's not um, sexy, you know. As opposed to yeah, um, so that could be part of it. Um, and um, we we think that some evidence uh, that that may be the case is um, like uh, going back to um, these small business people that we're we're meeting around uh, the world as well as in the U.S. who are who are already doing this uh, this idea that that aren't really you know coming from those types of universities or um, don't have, well, yeah. And you guys yeah, are cross-pollinating. So um, I think they're interested in it because they don't care about it being, you know, uh, super sexy or whatever in terms of the text. So um, I, I really do think that it's it's partly there's there's no interest in it because it's it's too applied and, and that's kind of it. It's not like, they, I, yeah, there's, there's no like conspiracy right. or anything like that. Like. <laughs> We, we definitely don't believe that. It's just the idea where we were kind of just proposing the idea to, to, to the wrong people. And we were in that bubble. And so it, we had to kind of get out of that bubble to really understand why those people weren't interested and you know, why wasn't this looked at. And I think we're starting to put the pieces together as to why that was. Um, but th there's also an elephant in the room here, which is biochar. Mm -hmm. um, you know, part of the uh, motivation for this discussion was biochar and when you talk to people in the carbon removal space, whether they're at a university or at a foundation that's supporting research, doing a startup, biochar is the 
dominant idea that people have. Now, why is that? Well, okay, well, I guess maybe we should give a quick summary of what biochar is and why it's attractive or it's apparently attractive. So with biochar, you would take raw biomass, just as we're suggesting. So start the start of the process is the same. You go out and you collect your raw biomass. Um, you're going to dry it out, right? You're going to have to make it pretty dry for biochar to work. And then where, where we would say slow down decomposition, you know, and we're going to have to get creative about how to do that. A biochar person says, take this biomass and put it in a reactor and you will get a product that doesn't decompose. Now, how does that happen? Well, it's, it's called pyrolysis. So you take your dry biomass, which is usually, it's usually been chopped up into little pieces, small particles, feed it into a chamber um, with no oxygen. So you're gonna heat it up quite a bit with no oxygen and the chemical hmm. composition of the biomass will change and it becomes more like coal. Another word for biochar is like bio-coal. Um, hmm. Now that biochar, bio-coal, when you put it out in the soil or just leave it around anywhere, it, it is pretty difficult for microbes to decompose right now. Now, so you step back and say, what are your two ways of uh, working with biomass? Are you gonna make a material that is uh, pretty resistant to decomposition or are you just gonna keep it as is? 99% of people today are saying, let's make biochar, right? Um, so I think this is a good segue into our discussion of biochar. It's uh, Amber and I don't believe in biochar. Um, and I'm not sure how else to put it. We, we, there are layers to this of why we're not particularly attracted to it as a technology, but maybe I'll just give you a chance. Is to... it, is it, is it possible that it's because like a biochar is hot? Yep. It is. It, it feels like, again, there's hype cycles in technology. It's the same in climate. It's the same in life in every area. There are hype cycles. Um, biochar seems like it's on its rise, reaching that climax point where everyone's like, biochar saves the world. Mm -hmm. I think most people understand that 90% of biochar projects, kind of like back in 2016, where everyone was doing an initial coin offering in crypto and 90% of those projects were probably fraud and money cleansing and such. But we seem to see those kind of hype cycles in every market. And I think people understand that most, most of what's being sold is like only 10% is actually the truth of what could be. Mm -hmm. So I imagine it's probably the energy usage because it kind of sounds like with biochar, it's a very energy intensive process that may not be necessarily justified to expend on. Um, I mean, I guess you could probably argue it, but am I on the right thread as to why biochar isn't a potentially attractive approach towards, I guess, scaling photosynthesis? How would you respond? Um, well, yeah, energy cost is one thing because you have to heat uh, the biomass to pretty high temperatures, like 500 Celsius or so. Um, the yield of the biochar is also pretty low because you're producing, in addition to biochar, you're producing side products like corrosive toxic gases. You're, you're also producing actually CO2 oh. in there and CO and um, oils um, that all need to be scrubbed out, you know, that's what we call it in the chemical plant or, or um, that, you know, separated right. and, and dealt with. Um, and so we think that at the gigaton scale, you probably wouldn't want to be generating toxic and corrosive gases uh, at all, even if some of those got out, you know, fugitive huh. gas of that type, you know, it's 
not good. Uh, the other thing is um, it's going to be expensive to have equipment around that can handle that. And um, the, the prices of the equipment are, are, are going to be, you know, expensive and, and they're, it's, it's not going to, it's the type of thing that it doesn't make sense to have dis distributed the way biomass is. You're going to want hmm. to have a centralized facility that can make the biochar if you're going to be making biochar and have to deal with all those gases and oils and stuff. Um, and so that's, that's just kind of goes against uh, the distributed. It's just not really compatible with the distributed nature of um, the biochar. So, mm -hmm. So, do, so it seems kind of like the same problem that I guess green hydrogen has where yeah. like you need a ton of custom, highly, highly specific facilities and systems in place to produce green hydrogen. While electrolysis and as a method of hydrogen production is a dream situation, it's very unrealistic that given the current state, We'll be able to scale it fast enough that everyone is suddenly driving around in hydrogen-powered vehicles right. and everything is hydrogen. Mm -hmm. It it just seems like an infrastructure-related challenge, first off. And I had no clue that there's toxic gases and such also produced in the production process. Yeah, there is. Um, and not just gases, but um, actually the, the char itself, uh, the pyrolysis process creates... Um, can't. Uh, chemicals that are actually carcinogens and, you know, dangerous in other ways. Hmm. Uh, one of them is polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And if you are putting that in the soil at the gigaton scale and you're not doing anything to um, isolate the, the biochar from the uh, local ecosystem, you know, in the way that, say, a landfill does, um, I think that at the gigaton scale, that kind of... Um, chemical will leach out. It could get into the water table. It could cause all kinds of problems. Um, it's, it's, you know, a pollutant. Um, and, hmm. and another problem with, with, with the biochar, that aside from all of those issues, is that if you are going to turn the biomass into char, you're, you're kind of committing to making it in the char. So if you want to, you know, down the road, use it for something else, like you know, converting it into fuels and chemicals or, or something useful, you can't do that anymore. So if you minimally process the biomass the way that John and I are proposing, not only would you not have all those toxic gases and toxic, you know, leachates getting into the soil, um, but the biomass at that stage is more like a stem cell. You know, it can become kind of anything you want it to become once you're ready to use it. <laughs> um, biochar is like, it's already something. It's some kind of cell that, you know, you, it's going to be hard or impossible to convert into, you know, something of your choosing later. Um, so to the extent that we're going to see this biomass as a resource someday, I think that making biochar also doesn't make, make a lot of sense, at least at the gigaton scale. That's, that's, that's mind blowing to, to think about as, because you don't really hear too much about the detractors to biochar. You hear about all the hype, um, which, again, hype is hype. New companies, more funding going into climate. Cool. Um, a solution is better than no solution. But at the same point, it, it'll... Like, if I, if I try and explain your guys' proposed solution in oversimplified English, it's 
tree falls. I have a number of them in my backyard from the last hurricane that we got here in New York. Um, you take one of those, you strip the branches and the twigs off, you turn it into a log, and you go throw it on a truck and raise that bed as high and just leave it there. And it'll start sequestering carbon just naturally. It already has sequestered the carbon. What you're doing is preventing it from re-releasing it. Um, think of it. Think of a tree as like the equivalent of CO2 that's injected underground, right? So you do direct air okay. capture. You got the CO2, you inject it underground. Now, everyone hopes it never leaks out. We're not too sure about that. Now, with a log, it's the same thing. Nature has captured the CO2 and it made a tree, a log, wood. Now you have to preserve that and work to make sure that it doesn't release it through decomposition processes. It's um, like a battery almost. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which is, you know, this is part of what Amber and I are fighting. You know, I said biochar is one reason why people don't take this uh, type of idea seriously yet. Another right. reason is that people who are experts in biomass and wood and plants and trees, they've been taught to think of it as something that must be converted into something else. Biomass is a feedstock for processes. Mm. And Amber and I are coming along and saying, well, wait a minute, biomass is, is just fine as it is. You don't need to do anything with it. Biomass is the end product of natural carbon capture. There is no need. There is, it does not have to be used as a building material. It does not have to be turned into fuels and plastics or whatever. It's fine so if you keep as, it just the way it is. Um, so as long as you store it and the decomposition rate is reduced, in your guy's case, 5% is the projected number to hit, you've now ensured that the amount of carbon being re-released has reduced significantly, which gives us that effect of 10 gigatons removed each year. Because reforestation efforts continue to pick up pace, carbon offsets are funneling it in, it's becoming more of an ethical process, there's less fraud occurring, which means now more trees are being planted and actually being planted, which means over time, if we keep some of it, I guess there's a certain amount that we would need to produce in terms of like woody biomass storage or biomass storage. Mm -hmm. As long as we hit that minimum at a global scale, then we're hitting the targets that you're talking about and the ways to potentially slow the process. Um, it seems like there's innumerable, uh, numerous ones such as sinking it to the bottom of the ocean or just lifting it up into the sky so that gravity can do its thing and the sun can do its thing. Well, I'll just correct you a little bit there. Uh, the idea <laughs> with the above ground storage is to kind of build a structure around it. Um, okay. The, the material that we would choose is waste plastic. So all the garbage plastic that can't be recycled, use that as your some containerizing material. So okay. think, think of like a honeycomb, right? Individual little cells. Um, now, obviously, we want those cells of the honeycomb to be as large as possible. Um, and each hmm. one would contain biomass in storage. And then you'd be monitoring it. And so if necessary, if water did get in for some reason, which, which it shouldn't, by the way, if you're building a container, you keep the water out. Um, but if for some reason water got in, you have mechanisms to get it out. Airflow um, would probably is be it like a, Is it like those grain silos? A bit, yeah. Similar. Okay. Except um, with a grain silo, you need to use steel or concrete because you're building a vertical tube, right? Right. So it, otherwise, it would, you know, the, the grain would fall out. And the natural shape for particles is a cone-shaped pile. 
So hmm. if you're trying to minimize the strength of the materials that you're using or the cost of those materials, you should just allow the particles to adopt their natural shape. It's basically a cone-shaped pile. Hmm. Um, you also touched on something really interesting, which is technology, right? Um, and I, I can, when you were talking, I could imagine people kind of screaming at their screens saying, <laughs> but, but, but this is impossible. You're going to have to monitor the wood forever. How will you be sure that it's not decomposing? And this is why we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We're going to develop those technologies. The concept is exceedingly simple. The execution is not. Um, so the actual work of finding ways to keep biomass in storage with very low energy inputs, you know, very low cost, you know, concentrating as much of it as possible in a single place. That's a lot of work. It's just that nobody's doing it. That's what drives us nuts. Um, now contrast that with the technology outlook for biochar. And th this is a, a bit of a, like a subtle scientific point I'm gonna make here, but you're not gonna see Moore's law for biochar. It is not going to get exponentially better. And why is that? It's because what are you doing with biochar? You're just heating up biomass in a kiln. Uh, we've gotten pretty good at it. Actually, I would say right now, the, the technologies for building those kilns, for separating the oils and gases, for providing continuous flow of biomass through the process, for, for providing heat for the system, they're all very good. Are they gonna get 2X better in five years? No. Are they gonna get 10X better in 10 years? No, absolutely not. Um, so this idea that every, every technology is gonna follow some like exponential learning curve and it's gonna get way cheaper, I think that's wrong with biochar because it's, it has built in high costs and I don't see how it's gonna overcome that. Whereas with biomass storage, we're at the very beginning and rather than trying to use brute force heat to convert the chemical structure of wood, we're just saying, we want microbes to have nothing to do with this. We want to st uh, stop microbes and funguses from, from digesting this material. As Amber said, there are many, many ways to approach that problem. Um, and so we think it, we're not against biochar per se. Like I don't want to shut down research into biochar <laughs> and, and that's not a scientific way to approach um, this type of problem. But it's also unscientific to be closed-minded and say biochar is the only way to handle biomass. And that's what we're seeing is that there is this refusal to engage with approaches other than biochar. And there, there are a few out there. The idea of sinking seaweed to the bottom of the ocean. Okay. You know, um, what are a few others, you know, maybe taking wood and turning it into some kind of um, plastic, you know, creative ways of sequestering carbon and wood, you know, using tall buildings, more using more wood that way. But if you're talking at the gigaton scale, things have got to be simple, you know, right. <laughs> the simpler your process, the better. And, you know, we're, we're out there banging the drums saying, you know, there are serious reasons why you don't want to put all your eggs in the biochar basket. How about just a few eggs in, <laughs> in an exequest basket, right? Like wh why, why just like shut down an entire direction of scientific research? That seems wrong to me and Amber. It, 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 it definitely seems like something that requires funding and, you know, be it Exequest or anybody, right? Um, you're the first ent entity that I have ever met that has spoken about biomass in this angle, um, which is fascinating because we need new creative approaches towards things. From my understanding, I, I think you guys are getting into the pilot stage potentially to try and build one of these units to to showcase how it may end up looking um, if we were trying to scale this system or idea or 
approach, I guess would be a potential <laughs> proper term to use here. Is that is that true? I'd love to learn a little bit more about uh, your guys' pilot project here. Yeah, so we're, we're working on a, a, a proof of concept with a, just a one ton of, of, of wood chips uh, in a plastic awesome. water tank. Like John was saying, it is simple. <laughs> Um, and monitoring that for changes in, in weight while uh, keeping it dry. And um, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's that simple. <laughs> now, we, we, we aren't saying that, you know, that's kind of the, the way that you would do it on a gigaton scale with plastic water tanks and wood chips specifically. Um, we're just kind of trying to demonstrate that this does work. You know, there is one way to make this work. Um, and a uh, picture a lot of the time speaks a thousand words. So when we, we think that once we have um, that, that example there, that that will really start to get people more interested as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, is there a timeline? Because I'd love to bring you guys back on once that pilot project's done too. The water tank currently sits in Nevada City, California, but okay. we're, we're a nonprofit. We don't own any land. So we're um, using uh, scientists who, you know, I knew through my time at Stanford, who's letting us work on his property. Um, for reasons uh, we wouldn't go into here, that we may <laughs> not be able to continue working at that site forever. So okay. when, Wherever that experiment finishes, we will certainly invite you so you can take a look. And, uh, you know, the initial pictures are on our website. If you go to exaquest.org under research, the page is called our first experiment. Um, awesome. Yeah, so I guess then, oh. yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, the reason we chose this above ground approach for the first experiment is that it is what you can do easily right now. Um, hmm. I, I'm as, I'm just as excited about the potential for underwater storage. So <laughs> potentially waterlogging biomass, getting it sunk to the bottom of the ocean. And, and, you know, as a company like running tide will tell you, you get below a thousand meters deep in the ocean. And even if the biomass decomposes, the CO2 and methane that's produced will not return to the atmosphere for many hundreds of years. So hmm. getting the biomass to the bottom is potentially a much easier approach, um, uh, just in terms of logistics and the technology that's involved. But if I were to try to sink 10 tons of, uh, you know, wood to the bottom of the ocean today, they'd probably arrest me on my way back in, right? It, this is not something, there are legal, regulatory, you know, social issues um, that have to be dealt with. So when it comes to just like storing wood above ground, uh, we feel pretty, you know, um, it's an easy solution that works today. Exactly. I'd like exactly. to just quick add something, if you don't mind, about to answer your question about experiments a little further. So um, John mentioned what we're specifically doing. And then there's kind of two other things to, to hit on, which is uh, the, the smaller businesses that we've, that we're in contact with that are also doing similar things, only not quite the above ground approach that we're looking at. That's going on right now. But then it turns out that also nature over the last several tens of thousands of years has come up with plenty of its own examples as well. I have, we have a collection actually of articles about um, wood uh, that has sank to the bottom of um, lakes, like the Great Lakes, that's not tens of thousands of year old, but there are hardwoods there that have sunk to the bottom from when the logging industry was active in the 1800s. And th they're actually being removed and they're perfectly preserved and they're being sold because it makes hmm. sense now to sell the wood rather than just let it sit there. There are other examples of um, trees that just got buried for whatever reason tens of thousands of years ago and are are dug up or and, and they're perfectly preserved. And those are 
a, a berry tree and we're, we're not, that's a little bit out of scope of what we're doing, but it just, it does show that, you know, under the right conditions, this wood can last for millennia. And um, then there's also <laughs> examples of, you know, ships that sink in, in, in salt water or fresh water. And so there are just, there are lots of little experiments out there if you just look for them and try to understand what the conditions were that allowed that to happen. Yeah, and what you guys are trying to do is take the small hints that nature yeah. has given you guys and reproduce it in a scientific yeah. way. That's right. And, and you know, even more than that, we just don't want to do what everyone else mm -hmm. is doing. You know, if, if you think biochar is a silver bullet, get in line. You know, there are a thousand people and a thousand startups who agree with you and they're getting plenty of money. And if biochar is the answer, I can just go to the beach and just like read some books because I don't need to worry about climate change. Same with accelerated weathering, same with direct air capture. There's so much like frenzy around those technologies that, uh, you know, I mean, one more, uh, you know, one more pair of researchers from Northern California isn't going to make a difference. Um, <laughs> but what really could matter is a technology with lots of potential that no one's paying attention to. And that's where I prefer Absolutely. to spend my time. I think we are providing real value and you know, Amber has mentioned kind of obliquely some of these other organizations that we're in contact with. I'd like to give them a little shout out here. Um, both of these companies applied for Stripe's carbon credit purchase program and were summarily dismissed. Um, they did not get past the expert review panel, which is stacked with people who don't think that our particular approach is a great idea. Um, enhanced biomass sequestration is based in Australia. Um, so okay. they don't have their own website, but their uh, Stripe application is available online. Um, and there's a company called Carbon Sequestration Inc. that's based in Texas. Um, and, you know, both of those companies will be joining us on a panel in about a week. We're going to talk uh, on the Air Miners Network um, and we're about this exact topic. Now, what's interesting about the discussion in about a week's time is that those companies are um, taking a slightly different approach. They want to bury the biomass. Hmm. So enhanced biomass sequestration wants to find these areas with hypersaline groundwater. So we're talking salty groundwater near the surface and bury the biomass in that. And to them, it's like pickling the biomass. Hmm. And then Carbon Sequestration Inc. wants to build pits and just fill up the pits. And then some of the pit would be above ground. So you could imagine like a landfill has some portion that's above ground. That's their idea. Hmm. This could work. Um, you know, Amber and I, we, when we think of putting biomass underground, it's like, well, you know, keeping water out of that kind of system is a little bit trickier. There's the cost of digging holes. You might disturb some soil carbon. So, you know, I, I can't say we've gotten super excited about digging holes, but there are people <laughs> out there who are putting real capital and real effort into businesses to do this, and they're not getting a lot of support. Um, so, you know, we're, we're in a sense... We're fighting for them too. I would love to see one of those companies break through and, and really you know, hit the big time in terms of visibility and funding. Um, Absolutely. And it's, uh, I think that's, that's what uh, a lot of people um, or younger scientists romanticize about research and going down a scientific career, right? It's the potential of the unknown, right? Um, the opportunity to discover something that, that, just no one's taking a look at and technically even if you find out that hey this is actually a terrible idea at least now people know what not to do <laughs> so there's there's definitive answers at that point um but this doesn't seem like uh it's going to end up in that in that category and i'm excited to see what the results come from this pilot project and 
and continue to monitor what you guys are building. But I guess then to to kind of wrap it up, I guess, is there anything that you would like to entirely and selfishly self-promote? Uh, because the floor is yours. If you want people to follow you, reach out to you, the floor is yours to let the audience know how they can get involved or stay in touch or get a job or join the efforts at Exequest Carbon. Well, that I think it has to start by being totally upfront about where we are. It's really just Amber and myself and a 501c3 nonprofit. We're extremely poorly funded at the moment. We have enough funding to do our experiments and make some noise and um, justify what we're doing, but we need to get bigger. We need more people involved. Um, we need donations. As a 501c3 nonprofit, if you donate to us through our website, exaquest.org, that's tax deductible to you. Um, we are looking for people to expand our team. Uh, you know, we're a group of researchers, so we're not necessarily looking to hire in the back office or anything. Um, but, you know, I've, I've said this to people who have approached us about volunteering. If you want to work with us, we will find something for you to do. Um, and, and I think we're such a mission driven organization. Like if there's a fit in terms of enthusiasm about what we're doing, we can, we can integrate you into what we're doing and, and let you join the team. And then I would say also to businesses out there, we think there's a serious business opportunity here. Now, Exaquest as a research nonprofit, all of our work is open source. The research results open source. If we get a patent, the license will be free. We're not going to be hoarding IP here. Now you would say, well, as a business looking at biomass storage, why would I want to interact with you? Doesn't that hurt me? And I would say, no, you want to move this technology forward, work with us, help us support our research and, and conduct our research. If you do that, you'll be the one who's closest to it. You know, no one in the world is paying attention to this. So if you want, if you want to get in on this field, you want to answer a few preliminary questions, you know, kick the tires of biomass storage and see how it works. We can, we can do some experiments together. And I think just in terms of research and learning more about how this works, um, there's a commercial opportunity. So and you know, pass it over to Amber for a second. Um, yeah, I guess I would just add to that. Um, I think that uh, one of the biggest reasons that John and I believe in this idea so much is we think that it can um, scale and scale quickly because of how simple it is. And like I was trying to say before, I don't think we would see these smaller players that are kind of, you know, interested in doing this sort of popping up. And I think that uh, it's not going to be some, it doesn't, or it doesn't have to be some, you know, techno fix, like, you know, direct error capture where you have to build and design this basically like factory or plant um, and find the right place to site it. Um, I, I think that there's a scalability factor to Exequest that essentially none of the other uh, methods that are being proposed right now have, and that is that uh, average people can do this. Um, and that's, that, I think, another awesome. thing that needs to be pointed out about our approach. Awesome. Well, uh, unless there's anything else that you both would like to add, I am going to take this sit down and probably end up trying to digest this for the next couple of weeks. And I can't wait until we get to connect again on the show and offline. Um, but uh, I think the audience is going to be pretty fascinated by what you guys are building. So with that being said, unless you guys have anything else that you'd like to add, 
Uh, I'm going to let you guys go, get back to your days, and continue to see if uh, we can just take what nature has given us as a way to just store and make sure carbon stays drawn down. Excellent. Thank you for having us. We really appreciated this uh, this opportunity to talk yeah. about our work and to, to meet your audience. Yeah. Absolutely, my man. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. If you are listening on Spotify, please make sure to add this to your favorite episodes and also consider sharing it on social. And if you're tuning in on Apple Podcasts, Make sure to leave a review with uh, your thoughts from this episode and, of course, to also share and subscribe to this show. The Green Room is brought to you by The Impact. There's a free newsletter that you can find on readtheimpact.com, which shares plenty of insights as well as brand new startups that we're finding that are pre-Series A, which could be opportunities for you, your fund, or potential co-founders to really want to check out and learn from. So with that being said, this is Swarnav Espajari from The Impact. It's been great to have you, and I'll see you in the next one.